Welcome to the Dr. Wyatt Show podcast for developing a long-lasting, happy relationship is the status symbol to achieve. And following my six marriage steps is a path to help get you there. I'm your host, Dr. Wyatt Fisher, a licensed psychologist specializing in couples counseling. Today, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Lee Balkum, and he's going to be talking with us today on the sensitive topic of infidelity. So welcome, Lee. Nice to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Wyatt. Thanks for having me. I'm gonna looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, yeah, it's an important one. So, Lee, what would you like the listeners to know about you? What's your background? What got you into the field of helping couples? Whatever you'd like to share. You know, we all have scars, battle wounds from history that usually routes us to where we are. And so uh, my parents are happily married, but um, I watched an uncle who was uh, married, I think, six or seven times unsuccessfully all the way to the last one. <laughs> and uh, my aunts on the other side were uh, divorced a couple of times. And and I watched what happened to the family. I mean, it's to me, it just rippled through four generations, really, of, of impact. And um, so that was my early childhood experience. And then I, uh, while I was at college, I knew I wanted to be in the helping world, helping profession. And um, that just kind of routed me right into working with couples. So I did grad school uh, training uh, to do that work. And then um, since then have continued to do that as a relationship coach. Um, I I usually refer to myself as being a recovering therapist. And so (laughs) I do coaching these days, uh, really with people around the world. And that um, that's been reflected in programs and books that I've written about um, topics on recovering relationships. Yeah. Wonderful. What do you mean by a recovering therapist? Um, so the statistics on, um, marriage therapy aren't real good. And so I was taught the way, um, those statistics show up. I was taught to do therapy and, and, uh, around areas that I don't think have proven to be particularly beneficial. And, uh, so I tried to find different ways of approaching that. And I, recognized somewhere along there as I was doing battle with my supervisors that I tended to be more a coaching approach anyway. And I think working with families and couples particularly is um, uh, much more of a coach orientation than um, what I was taught as therapy. So uh, that's that's the yeah. short answer. Sure, sure. Good. All right. So let's kick it off. So I have five questions here for you around infidelity. Um, and you wrote a book about infidelity. Is that correct? I did. That's uh, recovering from the affair, and it covers both emotional and physical affairs. Yeah. What made you write that book? Um, well, because it seems to be a regular big bump on the road for lots of couples, not every couple for sure, yeah. but for lots of couples. And um, and so the question is, what do you do after that? Because statistically speaking, um, infidelity doesn't end, it's not the marriage ender for everybody. Uh, for some people, it's a reawakening. And yeah. so uh, I wanted to help create a path for people who realized that there had been infidelity, whether it's emotional or physical, but they saw something of value in their relationship and wanted to move forward with it. Sure. Great. Okay. Well, here's the first question. What, in your opinion, and in your experience, and you've written a book about this too, uh, what is the leading cause of infidelity? Yeah. So we're going to bracket out one group of affairs, which are basically the ones that fall into addictions stuff, you know, people who are um, either sexually addicted or relationally addicted. And so they just fall into that trap repeatedly trying to get their fix. So we'll set that off to the side because that actually is the minority. And we'll go with your question, the, what's the leading cause? And that 
is disconnection. Uh, couples get disconnected. And so um, I would put there two big pieces. There is the disconnection and then somebody doesn't hold the boundaries. And what's important about that is both people are a part of the disconnection of the, the relationship. One person did not hold the boundaries to protect the relationship. And, and so and this is one that will kind of get, you know, are you blaming me for my spouse's affair? And no, but you were part of a disconnected relationship is a fact. And so you can hold somebody responsible for having acted out. They broke the boundaries and both be aware that somewhere along the way, their relationship became so disconnected that one person was willing to go try to find it somewhere else. So disconnection and just to drop back and step, I call it a pause button marriage that lots of uh, marriages fall into that where you hit the pause button thinking you're going to come back to it. And it's the kids, it's the career, it's whatever. And so they pause the button, not realizing that uh, relationships either are growing or declining. There's yes. not a pause. That's right. And so there's the disconnection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I resonate with that. And that's what I teach as well. Uh, the way I say it is the person who chose to break the marriage vows, that's 100% their decision, their fault to make that decision. However, the climate in the marriage that increased their susceptibility to want to make that decision is usually both partners fault yep. on some level. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And there are disconnected relationships that both people still either by opportunity or decision hold on to the boundaries, you know, they protect it. And, and so yeah. um, they don't put themselves in, in uh, situations that are going to put them at risk sure. um, and they don't take advantage if that just happens anyway. So, just because you're disconnected doesn't mean there's going to be infidelity. However, right. it raises the risk factor That's right. because humans are. For- yeah. You broke out there a little bit. What did you say at the end? We humans are so desperate for connection. We're just mm-hmm. wired needing that connection. And so if we, we start craving it and, you know, there's research that shows that when we have disconnection in a relationship, it triggers the pain areas of our brain the same way it would if you had an injury on your body. Our our brain reacts as if we are experiencing physical pain when it's emotional, relational pain. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. So number two, what if the wayward partner is not remorseful for their affair? Yeah. And that's almost always uh, one, one point in the process of recovery Um, and remorse, not remorseful comes in a couple of different flavors. Uh, one not remorseful is being able to blame the partner and say, you didn't provide what I wanted or needed or thought I wanted and needed. Um, and so you forced me to go seek that out. That's one level of not remorseful. Another level is um, having so much resentment that's built up over the years that you just aren't willing to go to that level of vulnerability. And then there's the other level, which is none of us want to admit that we've made a huge error and so their lack of a remorse is often uh, shame-based. I don't want to admit what I did. And so, you know, I my suggestion is to recognize that that is a typical part of the process. It's not the end of the process, but it's typical for couples to go through that and to, to um, in some ways, expect that that's going to be the case. Don't be surprised by lack of remorse and decide that what you're working towards is um, the accountability for where you've been disconnected in relationship 
and creating enough connection that A, the relationship is now revived and B, at that point, the person goes, yeah, now I'm feeling the remorse. And, and I often see that, you know, it, it's often a, I got busted. I feel bad about it. And that kind of goes away. And then they're like, oh, let me figure out the reasons that I shouldn't feel this. And they, you know, begin to, to not feel the remorse. And then as they rebuild the connection, then they get back to another place of remorse, which is a, actually a healthier remorse. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a great point that sometimes people may not feel remorseful because they feel so calloused or disconnected or resentful, but when they mm -hmm. start getting closer and feeling more connected, the remorse can become more acute. And, and that is becomes uh, painful for both people to deal with um, because that remorse often at that point becomes overwhelming. And uh, then they're doing the reparative work of forgiveness and um, taking responsibility and apologies and all that kind of thing. Sure. So number three, what if the betrayed partner can't stop bringing up the affair, even if it's been a while and they've, they've gone through an affair recovery process, but the betrayed partner just can't stop ruminating and talking about it and bringing it up all the time. And, and it becomes yeah. an obsession. What do they, what would you recommend to that? Yeah, it does. And so um, I, I talk about this in, in somewhat practical ways, which is that the person who committed the affair needs to be willing to be as open as, as makes sense. I mean, to be very open, to be willing to, um, answer questions to be willing to uh you know be accountable to where they are and, you know be where they say they are and all those pieces they have to be willing to do that and then i caution the person who suffered the affair to be very cautious about the question they ask because the questions we ask lead to the thoughts that we then are traumatized by and re-traumatized yeah. by and they we somehow uh many people have have become convinced that if they have every single detail of everywhere they did it, how they did it, you know, all those, those details that it will somehow, um, make sense of things. And all it does is create those, um, those thoughts. And so, um, practically speaking, one of them is to be very cautious about the questions you ask mm -hmm. and to, um, step back and, and just ask the question, why am I asking this question? Is this question going to move us towards, resolution in any way, or is it just caught up in the details and the sordidness of that? And if it's that, if it's the the sordid details that you think something is going to happen with, to then ask the question, what would make a difference in our relationship? Not what's happened, but where are we headed? And, and so it's a shift in perspective. Um, it doesn't mean you ignore, you know, we've, we've already established there was boundary violation and there was disconnection. We can move forward with talking about the important boundaries. We can move forward with talking about how do we restore connection, and that moves us to a better place. Um, it's just the details tend to cause more uh, traumatic injury yeah. than anything else. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And it is a balance because when you are the betrayed partner, you you want to hear like what happened. I can't move on until I hear what happened. But it's a double-edged sword because the more you hear, the more you get stuck in the trauma of the betrayal. And so it's, yeah. it's a really tough, fine line. And that's the there's the myth there that I can't bond until I have all the details. True. Um, that's, that's not true. Um, mm -hmm. The details don't help you move on. Uh, working on the connection does, working on boundaries does, working yeah. on, you know, kind of reforming the relationship does, but 
those those details don't do much to heal. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. And number four, what does it take to heal infidelity? What are the key steps in your opinion? Um, so um, there are a couple of different paths that are going to you know lead us there. One is if the person recognizes the person who committed the affair recognizes what they've done and um, is remorseful and ready to move forward. And that's an easier process because at that point you can be working on the apology, taking full responsibility, working towards forgiveness and talking about what it takes to build trust. So um, I I just kind of named a bunch of things there. There's, there's the apology. There is the forgiving. There is the trust and there's the reconciliation. And one of the things that I think is important to notice is those are four independent facts. They are four pieces that do, we, we think they go one, two, three, four, but somebody can decide to trust somebody, even if they're not trustworthy. I mean, people do it all the time. On the other hand, people can refuse to trust somebody who has now changed their ways and has become trustworthy. And they refuse that because it's, it's a gift either way. Trust is a gift. And it's whether we're going to make it too cheap or too expensive or, you know, make it what makes sense. So to be thinking about what is it going to take for me to trust again is an important end goal. Um, Some people can forgive somebody, but still not reconcile. And so that leaves out that last part and still have gotten to forgiveness, right? Some people reconcile, never have an apology, never have um, a uh, place of forgiveness and, and never really trust again. And this still, they, they do it. So it's important to be seeing those four pieces as separate stepping stones. You may not have a spouse who is ready to apologize, and yet you can still work on forgiving. In fact, I wrote another book on forgiving because of that fact that, you know, there's a process you can go through to recognize that you forgive, not because somebody has asked for it, but because you you do that for yourself. Right. And so mm-hmm. those decoupling those, so you're not having to wait for a spouse to ask uh, for forgiveness to go ahead and move in that direction. Mm-hmm. It may take a while, as we've already talked about, if they're recalcitrant, if they are shame-filled or lots of other reasons, they may not be ready to apologize. You can still step into forgiveness, and it's possible that the apology comes way down the line. Um, mm-hmm. And so then it's a matter of working on what is it going to take for me to trust this again? If mm-hmm. the person still doesn't apologize, what what would be the steps to trust and the commitment of uh, reconciling is saying, yeah, this relationship is still important, even though this happened. Um, yeah, I, I find it interesting that you know, pretty much every religion gives you a, an out on the marriage if somebody commits adultery. And yet, statistically, it's it's lower than the general population in divorcing. So many people go, yeah, but I choose not to. And to go, I can choose to stay and work on this and make this the relationship that I would want. And it doesn't require an apology. Um, if you're the person, person who suffered and you're waiting for that, don't, um, mm-hmm. you just keep dragging that along, but that is a part of the full reconciliation, um, that, uh, eventually needs to happen. Sure. So what would you say to the listener out there who is hearing this and they're saying to themselves, I just can't get over the betrayal. I just can't get over it. What would you say to them? And it's possible that is the fact. Um, as a, I mean, not everybody decides to stay in a marriage. And so they may decide that that betrayal is so big. Um, I, I tend to um, 
try to look at the whole of a marriage of what's happened. I mean, there's a lot at stake in a marriage. I talked about what happened with my family and watching the pain of that. And people many times uh, have the fantasy that they'll divorce and walk away and everything's going to be okay. And the interesting thing is they still have to somehow get beyond the betrayal, whether they're in the marriage or not, that betrayal is still a part of what they're going to have to deal with. And so they have to ask the question, Steph, um, if, what if I can't get over the betrayal of, am I going to get over the betrayal within relationship or am I going to have to deal with it after the relationship? And, you know, that that's the bigger question. Um, I, I think people tend to underestimate the capacity for healing. Um, you know, most people looking back, go, wow, I was more capable of that than I thought I would be. Um, but that, um, that's the bigger question. You're going to deal with it either on the, the front side or the backside, but mm. you're not going to get anywhere in life until you tackle that issue. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. That's a good way to think about it. So last question here is what would you recommend to couples to reduce their affair risk moving forward? Yeah. Uh, so if disconnection <laughs> puts you at higher risk, <laughs> connection is what lowers the risk. And, and there are actually two things. And I, um, I used to do premarital work. If people were going to get married in about seven different places than where I uh, used to work, they'd have to come through my office for three sessions. And one of the questions I would ask is, so what if y'all decided about boundaries for your relationship? And they would look at me as if I had asked them, you know, just what are you going to do to live on Mars? You know, mm -hmm. it never crossed their mind that that yeah. was a possibility. And so being um, uh, clear about boundaries is important. Um, negotiating what that's going to look like. And so sometimes people tend to think that they need to set their, their spouse's boundaries. You know, I'm going to tell you how you're going to interact with the world. And, and when you're talking about a partnership boundary, it's what you both are agreeing to, to protect that partnership, that, marriage. So it's not a, I'm going to do the boundaries thing to you. It's, we need to talk about what boundaries we want in place to protect our marriage. Mm -hmm. That's an important piece. And the that's second, sure, that's sharing is, power. That is sharing power. <laughs> that is. Because, yeah, and you see it as our boundaries. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Um, mm -hmm. That's, and it's our boundaries, right? Not you putting the boundaries on me. And mm -hmm. um, so, our boundaries protect our relationship of how we interact with other people, how we interact in the world, how we act in the world. Um, and how do we work to make sure that our relationship stays connected enough that we're, we're nurturing that and that we're not at a deficit for that, that we don't hit the pause button, that we recognize there's an important relationship to attend to. And mm -hmm. um, that a fair proof, no, but close to it. Yeah. What would be like the top two to three boundaries that you tend to recommend for couples to consider? So this is the interesting, um, you know, it's my wife and I have talked about boundaries like, you know, am I going to um, meet somebody for dinner or at a bar if I'm at some event? And, and the answer for me is no, but those are ones that need to be talked through by couples because it, many couples have some different views on that. Um, and so I think that the important question is what are the situations that would make your spouse feel uncomfortable and what are discussions you might have with uh, somebody uh, that would fall into the, your sexual attraction class. So, you know, if you're heterosexual, the opposite sex, if you're homosexual, the same sex, what would 
what would begin to feel uncomfortable? Uh, what would friendships need to look like to feel safe? What, uh, how would you, um, uh, interact with others in a way that would, you know, lead me to feel unsafe. And that is the vulnerability piece of being able to say, you know, it would make me feel unsafe if you did this. And, um, and to, again, pairing, you know, sharing that power to talk about what is that really about? What's behind that? Because there are times when I watch couples who have never thought about boundaries and can't even think about how they would create that. But I've also seen them that make it so rigid that basically they have no way of interacting in any part of life that may even come close to, you know, anybody else. And um, so they have to figure out what works for them. Those same rigid boundaries that I would see as rigid, they may go, no, those, those are perfectly fine for us. So mm -hmm. I, I think those tend to be more of a conversation negotiation than some clear boundaries that everybody should adhere to. Sure. No, I, yeah, that totally makes sense. I agree with that because it does need to be uh, sharing power where we're compromising, we're meeting in the middle on, I may think we need these boundaries. You may think we need those boundaries. So we have to negotiate that often to, mm -hmm. to strike a win-win where we're both in agreement. Otherwise we're not going to follow them. So yeah. if I feel like you're putting boundaries on me or I'm putting them on you, they're not going to be executed. Right. And, and I do think that for a couple that has a good um, amount of connection is fairly connected. If, if a uh, partner says, this makes me feel unsafe, there's probably going to be a part of you that goes, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to listen to that. And maybe I need to explain a little bit about what that looks like to me, but I want to attend to that. You yeah. know, if somebody feels, um, unsafe about a friendship, for instance, I think you need to take that on and go, okay, how can we either make it safe or decide that that that's a fair thing? Um, mm. and again, that's a shared power, but it is based in what makes somebody feel safe. Sure. Yeah. So you're saying the more connected you feel, the more sensitive you'll be to your partner's feelings around what would make them feel comfortable. And the more connected you are, the less risk there is for True. those around. Right. True. And so, yeah. uh, if you're feel, already feeling disconnected, a Facebook friend can feel very threatening when a, a connected relationship would go, ah, it's just a Facebook, you know? Yeah. And so there, yeah. there are shades that, that come into there that are partly about the relationship. Mm -hmm. And the other part I would add to that too, and this is something I teach in as in a separate you know type of uh, teaching, but it's all about you know owning our brokenness, owning also our own susceptibility, our own vulnerabilities. In addition to you know what would make me uncomfortable with you, also for all of us, just to have an honest take of what would be vulnerable and dangerous for me, um, right. knowing how I'm wired and knowing my you know where I might fall down or I might slip. I think that's really also important for all married couples or anyone in a committed relationship to really own your own tendency to mm -hmm. violate the commitment of your relationship if put in the right situation with the right person. Yeah. And there's a quote I read once I really appreciate. And it said something to the effect of, you know, the moment you think an affair would never happen to you is when you're often the most susceptible because yes. that's when our guard is down. That's when we're not having any boundaries because we think, oh, I could never have an affair. That would never happen to me. And that's when we take the most risks without realizing we're taking risks or we dismiss those risks. We think we're above the risks and that's when we fall. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's another humble, humble per approach to this topic, too. <laughs> As I've talked to these you know, young couples come to my office, you know, avoiding is a whole lot easier than recovering. And, mm -hmm. and so if you're even 
edging on the side of caution. Um, yeah, it's a whole lot easier to just avoid it than sure. try to figure out how to recover. Absolutely. Yes. Well, good. All right, Lee, any final words of wisdom on infidelity you'd like to leave with the audience today? Uh, you know, it's, it's all about what is your level of commitment to the relationship and working through the difficult times. Infidelity is, it's a big blow to a relationship, but it does not have to be the ending blow. You can choose that, but you don't have to. Um, it does uh, reveal something about the relationship that is in deep need of repair, but that repair can happen. So um, don't get lost in you know, the, the one crisis and decide that there's nothing that can be done. Plenty of couples do it. You don't have to normalize affairs to fact realize the fact that you can you know, still recover. Sure. Thank you for that. Yeah. And so if people want to connect with you, Lee, if they want to learn more about you and connect with you further, what are some options for them? Uh, so we, since we've been talking about infidelity, my book, um, Recovering from the Affair, you can find it at theaffairbook.com. Um, that's theaffairbook.com is just a shortcut, put you to the right place on Amazon, but you can order it other places too. Um, my podcast is probably the better place just to, you know, it's easy to get to, free to listen to. Um, save the marriage cast, save the marriage podcast.com, or just search for Save the Marriage on whatever apps you like to listen to your podcast and you'll find. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I appreciate all your wisdom you shared today and for sharing it with the audience today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bye. Good to talk to you. You too. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Wyatt Show podcast. If you enjoyed the episode today, be sure to click the five stars and leave a review. For more resources, be sure to go to my website, drwyattfisher.com. And remember, your marriage is alive. So if you care for it and nurture it, it will grow. But if you deprive it and neglect it, it will wilt and die. The choice is up to you. Take care.